Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, inspiration, and insights into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. Welcome to episode 14. On this week's episode, I had a coffee and a chat with Dr. Johan Lamprecht, a specialist ophthalmologist in private practice in Rosebank, Johannesburg. I first met Dr. Lamprecht when he was an intern at Charlotte McTakey, and I've been friends with him for about 15 years now. I hope you enjoy our conversation about his path in medicine and the journey to specializing in ophthalmology. Without any further ado, here is Dr. Johan. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee podcast, Dr. Johan Lamprecht. So good to have you on the show. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. Thank you Thank so you. much for giving us so much of your time. And uh, with all my guests, the first question that I ask is where you graduated from medical school, when, and also uh, where you did your junior doctor years. So that would be internship and community service. All right, so I did undergrad uh, in the Free State, UFS, uh, qualified in 2007. And then I got my internship post at CMJH. And did two years of internship there, and I did my houseman year at the old Natal Spread Hospital in Katlehom. And uh, yeah, then I specialized here in Joburg. Okay, so, so tell us about your specialization, right? So after doing community service, you did some MO time or was a registrar post available for you right away? No, so that, in ophthalmology especially, that, that uh, I guess it never happens. Um, maybe it has on occasion, but I had to do one year of MO time, which is actually considered quite little. Okay. Um, I did my internship and then made uh, contact with the department and started attending the academic meetings because I knew what I wanted to do. And then I started attending the academic meetings during my husband year on my Fridays that I finished early. And then I got the MO post uh, straight after that, which was very fortunate. A lot of people actually have to go and work in different uh, hospitals with smaller eye departments to get experience before they even get an MO post. Wow. So I got the MO post and um, also based on the availability of other MOs and people's interest during that year, I often call it the hand of God because there were so many people that came and they were just like, man, this is not for me. Mm. So I was the only MO at the end of that year that had uh, my exams that I needed and had surgical experience and so forth. Wow. And that was already in the department that by the time the interviews came around, then the reg post was available. So it was extremely fortuitous. Um, I spent one year of MO time. Sorry, sure. long answer for a short question. No, no, that's, that's great. It was so a very interesting um, just how things just fell into place. And um, even at, a, at a, an institution like uh, Baraguanas or St. John Hospital, where I did my MO time, there's obviously a lot of administrative work as well. So um, medical officers might have a huge burden and, and not do as much surgery as they do in a place like, for instance, Kimberley or Swaziland or one of those places. Um, but because I was the only MO and they needed assistance in theatre specifically, I also got a lot of surgical experience wow. during that one MO year, which was extremely valuable. So I'm very grateful for that. So a busy year. Yeah. But it sounds like, um, first of all, you mentioned you knew from the get-go ophthalmology is what you wanted to do. Uh, and it sounds like you also chased the opportunities. You said that when there were gaps, you know, you went to academic meetings and when people weren't um, seeing that it was for them, you, you took up the slack and you said, like, I, I really want this. So uh, one year is short for MO time. Roughly, what's the, the ballpark figure somebody can expect to be an MO in ophthalmology? I would say a, probably a year before the MO time and then about three years of MO time. Okay. And then um, 
you know, your rich time, which is around four or five years. Okay, so uh, you obviously had applied for an MO post. Yes. Was that MO post specifically at St. John's Eye Hospital? Yes. And that MO post, you would have seen an advert, and you said, this is where I want to be. Had you yes. worked at uh, St. John's Eye Hospital before? No. No. So this was a completely new experience, but you knew that ophthalmology yes. was for you. Maybe there's some people uh, who are listening to this podcast or watching the video, and they are considering ophthalmology. Yes. What was it for you that helped you decide ophthalmology is where I want to be? So that's a really interesting question, and, and I often get it. And I don't have, uh, my, my first answer is, well, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a really cool answer, because I don't. It's just all I've ever wanted to do. I knew before I... I even finished school, that it's what I wanted to do. And I didn't know uh, ophthalmologists or and there, there aren't any other doctors in my family, um, or, or at least not in my close family. Um, and it was just, I think it's a speciality that sort of found me. And it makes sense now in retrospect, but I can't really explain in detail how the journey went. Um, but it's, it's this combination between every system in the body uh, affects your eyes and you can see signs of all the common conditions also presenting in the eye and at the same time it's a very very narrowed down specialized approach and it includes microsurgery so it's this really uh, comprehensive knowledge of medicine but then when it comes to your part in the team effort you don't have to to do all the biologics and you know all mm. the repeat um, you know, the special investigation symptoms like central nervous system imaging and the blood tests and all of that. Mm. Um, you work with physicians and neurologists and neurosurgeons and so forth. And when it comes to your bit of treatment, it's very mm. uh, like cool in the way that it's extremely technology-driven, microsurgery, um, you know, 3D nice systems. Exactly. <laughs> we, we're very toy-dependent. And unfortunately, you know, that that's a whole different side of the of the practice which you might get to um, if we have time but you know economic factors that determine how much it costs to actually have an ophthalmology practice and the different the exchange rates and so forth um, that is, it has an impact on what it takes mm. to stay up to date as an ophthalmologist and mm. have you know the latest equipment available and how then do you provide that service to your patients um, and make it still financially sustainable yeah that's another side of the of the discussion but that's what looking back i find very attractive about ophthalmology is those different aspects uh, you don't just throw medicine out the door but at the same time um, your treatment modalities are very focused and you get to be a very like niche part of the whole treatment team i understand that way. so the, the path the common path to ophthalmology will always be some mo time mm -hmm. and then applying for a registrar post in ophthalmology um, that will last, you said, four years. Mm -hmm. Is that four years across the board, whether you do it here in Gauteng or in Western Cape, it's four, four years standardized? Yes. There is um, there's a little bit of flexibility in that, uh, depending on the amount of experience you have. But the College um, of Medicine of South Africa, Colleges of Medicine of South Africa, have certain requirements in terms of time you need to spend in clinics, getting experience, mm -hmm. surgical cases, and there are different steps that you need to go through before you can advance to the next examination. So some people would have a lot of experience and come in as a registrar. They might apply to get six months off their registrar time. Okay. Or other people might have, you know, been pregnant during their reg time and might apply for six months extension to finish their exams and so on and so forth. Yeah. 
So um, the four years, within that time, you have to have completed certain tasks, certain exams. What are the primaries like, or what exams are there for ophthalmology? So it's primaries, intermediates, and then your part two, your final. And are those surgical primaries, or is it specifically ophthalmology? Specifically ophthalmology. So your um, the exams changed quite recently. So during, during my reg time, more or less, I think the first uh, new set of exams, it used to be primaries and finals. Mm -hmm. um, and then they broke up the anatomy um, portion of that and brought part 1B in, which was much more in-depth focus on your, um, uh, I want to say, pathology mm -hmm. and your intraocular tumors. And oh, wow. so they just ex extended uh, the scope, expanded the scope a little bit of that exam and divided it into two. And now the, the demand for ophthalmology posts is so high that most MOs actually finish part two, part 1B, um, their sure. second exam. Sure. And then you go into your range time having to only do your research master's degree and your finals. Okay. So there's three exams. They all have their sort of ups and downs, but the part one is now less difficult, I think, than what it was. Mm -hmm. The part 1B is, I think, more difficult than what that portion of, of the part one used to be because there's more of a focus and you get back to the microbiology and the pharmacology and all of that in much greater detail because it now has its exam on its, on its own. And then also the optics. Mm. Optics used to be sort of divided between part one and part two, whereas now there's a very specific focus on the optics, the refraction, and, and because it, it, it becomes more and more complex and incorporated in our different uh, imaging systems and the special investigations we do. So there's a bit more of a focus on that as well. Uh, the, the increased use of different types of laser technologies and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so it's more a case of just modernizing and updating exactly. the training process yes. rather than trying to make it more difficult or yeah, there, was no, there was no sinister motive, let's say. Absolutely not. I think it makes perfect sense actually. Yes. And it gives you an opportunity in future, I, I don't think it's optimized in that way yet, but it gives you an opportunity to start choosing the path that you are likely going to follow as an ophthalmologist because all medical specialities are becoming more and more uh, subspecialized. And you know, there are countries in which there are strictly medical ophthalmologists mm. or neuro ophthalmologists or pediatric ophthalmologists. So having these exams that, that really test where your strengths lie, you obviously need to have comprehensive knowledge, but I think it helps you to steer you as the candidate in the directions of interest and strengths and you know once you've qualified then you have a better idea of of where you fit in the system that's very good so as medical students we don't get much exposure to uh, ophthalmology i think at wits we got two weeks mm -hmm. in our fifth year of ophthalmology um how would somebody um need to characterize their interest in ophthalmology if you if that's really something for them uh, what are some, some of the key words or key things that you think a good student of ophthalmology um, should have within them? What traits should they have? That is an interesting question because we, we are diverse, even as ophthalmologists. But, you know, having said that, and I think most interns specifically that have this slightly higher, uh, you know, turnover of different specialities that they go through, and you get a better idea of the of the, the vibe within each mm. each subgroup, and there definitely are, um, you know, personality types and and just certain sort of personas that fit within each. Ophthalmology has that that 
need for perfection. Uh, we're very, we, we're sort of um, friendly type A's, if I can put it that <laughs> way, you know. We can all immediately think of the type A uh, specialities out there in, in medicine. And then ophthalmology seems to be on the surface um, a, a little bit of, of less loud personality, but deep down there's this incredible you know, drive for, for a high uh, efficiency and mm. at the same time maintaining that perfection. We, we often see patients with 20-20 vision, but they're not happy with their vision. So you need to really be able to interrogate those finer nuances, the subjective um, aspects of vision. And um, that, that it, it requires patience, but at the same time, it, it needs to be managed very carefully because you can't, you know, it, it's, not a, it's not, for instance, a psychiatry or a psychology consultation. You know, there's, you have to get down to what is practically going to help the patient. So you constantly have to manage that tension. And then, like I said, there has to be an, an awareness of what's happening in the whole body mm -hmm. because it's those things that present as eye conditions and you we often diagnose multi-system conditions often life-threatening conditions um, you know think of things like cmv retinitis patients present having absolutely no idea that they are hiv positive and have cd4 count of 40 and they come in the first sign is they went blind in an eye and you look in there and the retina is completely necrosed and now you have to go and, and, and like start this whole journey with this patient while at the same time they have an emergency eye condition that you mm. need to treat. And they need to process all of this you know, quickly. You don't want to lose them because people just get freaked out and overwhelmed. So how do you link them up to their infectious diseases specialist and, and the psychological counseling that they need? And, and you need to have a, an idea of what the other investigations are that they would need to immediately assess their risk. And the same goes for TB, the same goes for, for multi-system inflammatory conditions like lupus and obviously diabetic eye disease we all know about. So huge communicable and non-communicable disease profiles within mm. the eye that often presents in the eye. And then you have to then, like I said, we become part of a much bigger team with a very focused management, but we often see the patient first. And you need to know, you can't just go, oh, you have, uveitis, inflammation in your eye, and like, let's give you some steroids and see if you get better. You need to go, well, what kind of uveitis is this? Is it likely infectious uh, or non-infectious? And what is the extent of it? And, and who do we need to refer you mm. first? Mm. Because this can also be a life-threatening condition. So to summarize your answer in a way, uh, if somebody is interested in ophthalmology, they need to be aware that it's not just focusing only on the eyeballs and leaving, as Dr. Glockenflecken calls it, body medicine alone. <laughs> yes. um, Real medicine. <laughs> you know, all, of that's, all of that is still a part of your daily experience in your daily practice. Absolutely. And your medical training, you don't say, okay, well, seven-eighths of my medical training doesn't count anymore. It's exactly. all still affected in your management of patients. So it's interesting. I really, really did not enjoy medicine until I became an ophthalmologist. Um, and, and that's why I think that personality is that person that wants to focus on something and they have high demands and perfection of himself and you can't do everything perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you have that wide scope of knowledge, but then you yourself want to work in a narrower scope and, and really aim for those perfect results and create more and more of a niche until you, know, you feel like you're the best doctor that you can be. Yes. Um, I, I would be a horrible GP. I would be a horrible pediatrician. I would be 
horrible uh, orthopod, maybe. I almost did orthopedics. But so, um, did you know that before becoming an ophthalmologist? Yes, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> so medicine, you know, there were they were these papers that we just go like I have I have to pass this, but like I really just have to pass this so that I can one day become an ophthalmologist. This is okay. you know. And then granted, you look back and you go, okay, okay actually, I needed all of this knowledge. Sure. You know, I needed, I needed all of this to, to be the best ophthalmologist that I can be. Um, so, you know, it just comes back to, to the question, you know, what sort of person, what are the things that stand out? I think it's, it's a person that's driven for perfection and they know early on what they want um, and, and are willing to go to slog through all these processes like the long time it takes to get into ophthalmology and um, you know then all of a sudden it's like you just start over you have this very steep learning curve on procedures that you've never done before on mm -hmm. instruments that you've never worked before it's not the same sutures it's not the same gauges it's not the same viewing systems everything's new you just have to start over but you have that single-minded focus to get you know to to into a speciality where then you have these extremely high demands in terms of efficiency and and visual quality um, and all the while not forgetting like you said throwing the other 70 percent of medicine and it's so interesting the psychology even of it 75 percent of people regard losing their vision as the worst physical loss they can suffer wow. including limbs including memory wow. and then obviously the other senses like smell taste etc so we see a lot of anxiety around around visual symptoms um, and conditions that present with visual symptoms, which are sometimes just common migraine uh, and sometimes, you know, raised intracranial pressure, which people are oblivious to, but they have mm. these dimming vision symptoms. And they often just present with the anxiety of going blind. And then you have to deal with that based on how serious or not it is. and And often... People just want to hear the words at the end, so you're not going blind. <laughs> if they don't hear that, everything else was a complete waste of time. Yeah. So there's even a psychology that you can't ignore in terms of addressing the needs of the patient. So very, very interesting, very focused, but it's at the same time so, mm. so wide in, in how you have to approach the patient, which I guess is all of medicine has, has gotten to that point where we realize, you know, it's holistic medicine. And I think that's why you have this constant tension between people becoming more and more super specialized while at the same time you realize you have to practice holistic medicine you have to consider all the other aspects of the being yes. in front of you um, and and somehow incorporate it into your treatment paradigm so you've mentioned a couple of times how competitive the road into ophthalmology is yes. And especially for our junior doctors listening that are considering their career options on the other side of internship and comserve. Um, what do you think, let's just interrogate that for a second, what do you think is driving that competition for places? Um, are there just not enough posts to fulfill the actual need for ophthalmologists in South Africa? Um, or what is it that's appealing to people that makes them consider uh, ophthalmology as a career? That's a very interesting question, and I haven't actually thought about it. I was just all about get in, get in, get in, you know. Um, and perhaps one should look at this at a policy level. Mm -hmm. You know, it would definitely have historical factors, economic, political, etc. And ophthalmology is kind of seen as 
the the eyes that small little organ there like why is it so important and mm-hmm. why why is your equipment so expensive and why are your procedures so expensive and you know uh, it's it sort of relegated to the side i think uh, perhaps on a policy making or a decision making and a budget allocation level while at the same time there's such a need for it because of the severity of visual disability. Sure, and what you said about how 75% of patients would consider losing vision more serious than losing a foot or an arm or a leg. Exactly, um, and th- there are studies that, that show that, you know, roughly, it, it roughly halves your mortality and your morbidity per age before and after something like cataract surgery simply because you've got a lower risk of, of car accidents, falls, taking the wrong medicine, um, you know, misreading labels and so on and so forth. Like just improving your vision improves your your all-cause morbidity mortality, hmm. um, you know, per, per age of the individual. So it's that important but high-cost, um, you know, niche speciality and with a specific individual that goes for it. And then at the same time, you have to fit that into the greater scope of medicine and you've got yeah. huge burdens of your overall systemic non-communicable diseases so they need physicians and um, you know th- I think that's where that that tension lies and ultimately you know something's got to give mm. and also of course all the training posts are funded by a public health system that has to allocate resources exactly. and like you said people exactly. think oh the eyes it's exactly. a small organ um, okay so you completed registrar time um, you are now in private practice, so tell us about the adventure of setting out uh, to start your own practice or be involved in a practice with others and associates in a practice. How did, how did that journey unfold for you? What an adventure. And uh, I mean, there are people with way, way better adventures, not that it's a competition, but it's <laughs> just so, it, it is so amazing. I sometimes look back and I go, you know, what was I thinking? You know, what if it didn't work? Yeah. <laughs> what if? What if no one came to see me? You know, what if? What if? What if? What if? Um, but once again, you know, there are so many things, and I think COVID has taught a lot of us that there are actually so many things that we have no control over. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, what whatever your belief is about the the bigger picture, you know, I am just extremely grateful. So many things just fell in in place and um, I remember in my final year just after my exams I was just feeling so lost and I decided well I know I enjoy anterior segment surgery and there's an anterior segment conference every year called SASCRIS sorry every second year and um, I went there just to you know you stay in touch with the knowledge and and you see some international speakers and so on and so forth and I ran into a colleague that had finished specializing five years before me Mm. and he said you know what are your plans I said well actually I'm desperately looking he's like well let's have a chat after Saskas when we get back to Joburg and they just had a room available and said well you can come and pay rent with us then if you join us then there's less rent and we use each other's equipment and yeah. you just have to set up your own room and then i did i did so it was through that connection you exactly. got an opportunity it's yeah. literally just uh, over a beer after one evening at at one of the conferences and so one really has to has to have that sense and, and it's difficult you know looking back you feel, you know your knowledge base is good, but you know you, you don't have all the experience and 
you know, everyone's read these days about things like imposter syndrome and social anxiety and those things out there that are ridiculously common. So now you have to go and put yourself out there and you have to compete with all the all the narcissists that have no issue putting themselves out there. And it's just like, oh, where do I fit into the system? But, you know, when, when you reach that level and even when you finish with med school, you you've you've worked hard or at least you should have worked hard and and you have a, a very special gift and skill set mm-hmm. and and experience behind your back and you just have to you just have to to own it and put it to work and you know there are leaps of faith and uh, you know take them take them and don't don't expect life to to give you anything for free when these things do happen you know, grab them and make the absolute most of them and, and give give recognition where it's due, you know, like that's an opportunity where, sure, you can say I went to the conference and I, you know, had these conversations, I could have just sat in my hotel room, and, but at the same time, you know, I'm very, very, very grateful and fortunate for the opportunities that have come my way, and you obviously, during your student years and your reg time, people get to see your work ethic, they get yeah. to they get to see how you treat patients, how you treat your colleagues, how you treat authority when no one's watching, you know, and and that builds your reputation long before you're out there and getting your reputation on Google or social media or whatever. Very good. Do those things, be consistently you so that when the time comes to to, to ask for that position, then you have actually got a reputation and you've met one or two representatives from the companies and they've seen an interest and they've seen your knowledge and it, it, you, you, you can't really... I have a colleague that always used to say, fake it till you make it. But it's actually because she she was it. She just had to tick all the boxes and jump through the hoops and write all the exams. She wasn't actually faking it. She was already that individual. She just had to go through the process. But obviously what she meant was just keep going, keep going. And yeah. if you're consistent in your effort and your work ethic and in your the way that you approach patients, then you you'll find your place because there is need for such people. Uh, in the system, people that care, people that can manage their practices and their finances well, people that are good with staff, people that respect their colleagues, etc., etc. Just be that person, and uh, yeah, the opportunities will open up. The adventure will continue. Yeah. And at one, what point uh, did you decide that you know you're going to go into privates? Were you ever considering to stay within the public sector, maybe take up a consultant role? Uh, did that ever? Um, become an opportunity that you had to think about? I did actually consider that. I really enjoyed teaching. It is, it is still the thing that I miss most. And when, when uh, colleagues, optometrists, or slightly younger ophthalmologists, or, or registrars and so forth, ask if they can come to theater with me or something like that, I love that because mm. you get to share something that you just absolutely enjoy. And fair enough, there are people that don't. And like I said, there are diverse personalities. But um, in the in the state sector, you obviously just teach so much, you know, and um, it it's tremendously rewarding to see the light go on, you know, for people as you go through the system. You just see people grow and you see people go past you and get better than you. And it's um, it's really really rewarding, and and those are then the colleagues that you look out for, you know, and when you need help with stuff because we we all need help, so. The, the thing that made me choose was the fact that, that unfortunately, doing both well is, I think, extremely difficult. And, mm-hmm. and you, there are people that do it, but I think 
you know, based on your, your financial setting and how much reserves you have and how much people you have depending on you, the public sector is very strict in terms of how much time you can spend in private practice. And I wanted to manage that well, manage that ethically, not take time away from my, my state clinics to go and spend more time in private practice. Sure. So that tension became too big for me. And, uh, and the state sector obviously puts a cap on you in terms of the time you spend, how much you can earn, what you can do in terms of resource availability, etc. So at some point, mm-hmm. I just go, well, I'm gonna, something's gonna give. And and private sector had more freedom in terms of of doing things that I hadn't yet done before, um, change flexibility with working hours, uh, which would allow me then to cover my overheads in private practice because. I was literally paying my private practice overheads with my public sector salary sure. while still you know, providing, uh, adding to the family income and so forth. So private practice was much more risky because mm. then you start from scratch, but it has less of a ceiling. So you can then work towards surpassing your potential. But if you're an academic and teaching is your primary passion, then you know it's very hard to get that outside of the state yeah. sector. And I still miss it. Yeah. Okay, so take us through a day or maybe a week in the life of uh, Dr. Johan Lamprecht. So uh, how much of your time would be spent in theater? <coughs> when would you be in clinic? How much time are you in your, in your rooms? And what are your working hours like? So sitting here answering these questions, I find myself getting sidetracked the whole time because there's so many little details. And I think to myself, oh my goodness, a whole week. I don't know where this, this conversation <laughs> is going to end. But let me try and keep it simple. My theater list is on Monday afternoons. Okay. So ophthalmology is a surgical speciality, and I see patients on Monday morning. Often it's patients that I want to do a quick check before taking them to theater, but whoever else gets that gap in my calendar, and then I head off just before lunch to theater, and then I operate the whole of Monday afternoon, which is really good because then you have the whole rest of the week to deal with post-operative issues. Mm. And... You know, you might think, well, you shouldn't have many post-operative issues, but one of the things that I enjoy is specifically complex anterior segment cases. So people that have had previous trauma and iris tears and, and traumatic glaucoma and people with dislocated lenses. And so those patients are quite unpredictable in their first few days post-operatively okay. to ensure that they are stable that you know their eye pressures are at the right level and they are there's just a greater degree of variability um, with certain surgeries than with others so that's why it's nice to have the rest of the week open so the rest of the week you know Tuesday morning I do all my post-ops and then I just consult for the rest of the week but I often have to see these patients again on a Wednesday or a Friday before the weekend um, to make sure that these more tricky cases are stable and it's basically a matter of you know come in when I want to come in and leave when I want to leave. It's nice having your own practice, but one obviously wants to optimize your time, you know, sure. so you, you get up in the morning and, you know, go train and then you come home and you do the school run and it's all chaos and toddlers screaming and, you know, <laughs> usually flying all over the place and then you make it to work and you're like, <sighs> and, then, and then you start. And then the day just flies by, you know, yes. and it's just... Um, it can be tiring because there's this relentless decision making and like I said you deal with the anxiety and the complexities and you know at the end of the day you get there and you're tired you go home mm-hmm. and uh, so an overly simplistic view of 
physician encounters with patients versus surgical is that the physician will have a long patient encounter and see the patient repeatedly in clinic and manage them over a long period of time. Uh, and again, as I said, this is a simplification and it's a, it's a myth that the surgeon will only see the, the patient maybe once or twice before surgery, see them in theater, maybe once after and then goodbye, live the rest of your life in health. That's not really true, particularly not true of ophthalmology yes. because there'll be follow-ups um, yes. over months and years to come. So how many of your patients are you seeing on a regular basis? Um, or maybe I could reframe the question to say, how regularly are you seeing most of your patients? So it's very individualized. Um, I see That's quite a, a diplomatic answer. I see quite a bit of... <laughs> it's, it's fascinating how individualized it has become, really, just the amount of information we get from the scans and so forth. Mm. But, um, you know, things like glaucoma and macular degeneration, and th those are lifelong conditions. So then you see, based on how stable they are, maybe once a year, you know, okay. or maybe once in three months. Um, people with active disease, you often see even more than once a week, you know, or like your exudative macular degenerations, you see them at least once a month until you've stopped their exudation and their bleeding, and then you start extending the interval. So it's absolutely and there's a lot of chronic conditions and I have a lot of patients that I've seen like I've, I have one patient that we was one of my first patients got a vein occlusion and he's got macular edema and you know he got steroids in his eyes he developed a cataract he had cataract surgery and shortly afterwards had a retinal detachment sure. and uh, which is one of the processes that gets accelerated by cataract surgery or repeated injections so then you have to deal with that and then you know, then you've got glaucoma from his steroids and post-retinal surgery. So you go so, through this whole journey where where you you might see a patient once for a simple cataract, simple cataract, I'm not, I'm, I shouldn't There's no use, such thing as a no simple cataract. Thing, uh, what, what in your mind or yeah. in, in the medical aid's mind is a simple cataract. <laughs> but, and then, and then, you know, they come back and they, they had a, an, an artery occlusion or they developed uh, diabetes or they get a retinal detachment or that trauma you know sure. just unexpected trauma and the iris and the lens is gone and now you have to start from scratch and sure. you know it's just um, there's no there's no you don't know who you're going to see again even if it was a, a quick mm. finish in class and you said your theater list was Monday and yes. that I mean that's leaves four days of the rest of the working week where you are not in theater Yes. So you're not, uh, it's not really a theater-heavy surgical discipline? No, so the, it, the dynamics change. Uh, most ophthalmologists, so I've only been in practice now for six years, and um, there have been some pretty tough economic times, and it's been two years of COVID, so it's hard to say exactly where on the curve I am. And also starting in, starting, you know, by yourself, setting up a room and just working off overflow as opposed to a very busy practice where you now take over some guy's practice and there's thousands of files and you have mm. to just there's different growth rates for different practices sure the um so my my surgical capacity is definitely not full yet but like i said you might get people that become medical ophthalmologists or sure. neuro ophthalmologists they don't sure. do surgery at all yes. so most people would probably most ophthalmologists would probably have a full day's list or about a day and a half okay of theater time um, if they're at sort of maximal surgical capacity and they get lots of referrals for specific conditions that are surgical conditions so 
and and obviously if I see emergencies, then I often do take them to theatre Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sure. So. Um, Are you ever on call as an on call yes. ophthalmologist? Yes. Yeah. So the hospital that I work at, we just have a, a sort of a two weeks at a time. One person covers the whole of of that hospital. All the calls that that hospital gets, gets forwarded to me, and sometimes it's absolutely madness, uh, which is another myth about ophthalmology is that it's really the chilled life. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess when you're in private... There are eye emergencies that require you to come out <laughs> late at night. Yeah, although, although I don't know who follows Dr. Glockenflecken, but <laughs> he has some very interesting uh, videos about that, which are so funny. And yes, we don't... We do, compared to, say, vascular surgeons and trauma surgeons, it's, it's, not, it's not that crazy. But um, we do have emergencies and... I often, you know, when my friends would see me early on when I was specializing, they would say, hey man, how's it going? Did you save anyone's eye today? I'm like, no, <laughs> dry eyes and, <laughs> you know, sort of blepharitis. <laughs> but there are those conditions. I once got a call on Christmas Day to go to um, a hospital in the southeast, like Ikrulini, and um, was a patient that had sinus surgery and she developed a retrobulbar hematoma wow. and she literally had no light perception in that eye and um, I had to do a lateral canthotomy and cantholysis and um, the next day her vision had returned to 6-9 and a week later she was 20-20 again. Wow. So that's the kind of Very thing where, rewarding, yeah. so that's amazing. So there are these cases, you know, and by the fact that I remember that one, it tells you there's not that many. But you get doctors that work in like Garden City, uh, Nedcare, or, you know, the trauma centers, Moat Park, etc., where you see a lot of much more urgent stuff, you know, or you get, uh, you know, Stephen Johnson cases referred to you from oh. ICU. Sure. Um, those, those are urgent things. Uh, so it depends on where you are and your scope of practice. There are ophthalmologists that are really busy and work late into the night and there are ones that have heavy theater lists or that almost only operate and see pre-ops and post-ops and then there are ones that are basically medical ophthalmologists that don't really go to theater often so even within ophthalmology there's a wide scope for different personalities and different skill sets Um, I think it's a big leap to get that far and then still figure out but we're all I guess constantly figuring out what is it that we're really, really good at and what we really enjoy? Sure. So what is the training in South Africa? Uh, how does that compare internationally? Uh, are our ophthalmologists competent uh, by international standards or are we restricted in any way, maybe in terms of the equipment we have um, or the cost of getting equipment? You mentioned the exchange rate. Mm. Um, what are, what, how do we compare? So uh, this is obviously, a, you know, I'm not high up in academic you know, faculties and, and I don't compare curriculi from around the world, but I think ophthalmologists in South Africa are extremely well trained. Once again, it's what you make of it, you know, you can sort of get through the system um, in, a, in a less ideal way, but it's not that easy, you know, the, re- the exams are strenuous and your, your knowledge is, is tested wide, you know, so... Um, Hashtag don't be that guy, you know, <laughs> just make the most of it because yeah. our training's excellent. We almost universally have more surgical experience than, than other countries, especially the European and, and the Far West. Um, you know, like I, I've been to quite a few international courses, uh, especially in Switzerland um, and one in Greece, and you meet people from all over Europe and, and they're just really in awe of the amount of surgery that we've done. Um, 
and and all countries have have financial uh, constraints and um, you know d- depending on whether it's a socialist healthcare system mm. or you know uh, very much bureaucracy in terms of what you can and can't use and getting approval from all the funders and, and even in, in capitalist economies South Africa has this weird mixture but you know even in the US there's this exact same issues we face with getting funding approved for for medications and so forth so there are there, there are always the fights about the money and mm-hmm. and um, it's uh, what was the question no so I think you've already answered yeah. fantastically well that we do compare well. Yeah, you compare uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna suffer for having a, a degree in South Africa. Absolutely not. Not yeah. in terms of ophthalmology. Like honestly, we have had over the past century numerous pioneers in various subspecialities in ophthalmology, um, world-renowned uh, speakers or at least individuals, and mm. and also unfortunately with with the amount of people that immigrate, there are a lot of incredible South African ophthalmologists that trained here. And eventually left and went overseas and, and are hugely successful um, in their practices whether it be in in somewhere in the UK or Canada or Australia New Zealand etc mm. so really guys that come from here with a tremendous foundation of ophthalmology and then go out there and make it work anywhere in the world so, yeah amazing yeah. so if you cast your mind back to when you were a junior doctor mm. um, and you obviously plied your trade here in Joburg and then at the Telsbrates what were some of the lessons that you learned that you wish to pass on to junior doctors so that we can be spared the pain of learning the similar lessons? Oh, one of the first things that immediately come to mind is don't burn your bridges. Just don't burn your bridges. And the second thing is just, you know, we, we all have such big knowledge gaps, all of us. Um, and don't try and hide it. Mm. Be open about it, because the more open you are about your knowledge gap, the quicker you learn. I think we have this thing in human nature where you always want to put your best foot forward and 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 you know pretend like you know everything. Um, but I find that some of my most senior colleagues and respected colleagues sometimes ask the most you know simple, but then the most profound questions, and you realize why. I felt too dumb to ask that, and here the boss is asking that question <laughs> in front of everyone because he doesn't care anymore that yeah. people and he knows the answer actually. There's no pageantry of trying to earn a award mark, you know. He or she is humble enough to ask that question for the benefit of everyone else, Very actually, good. you know. Yeah. And often asking a question is for the benefit of more than just yourself. But getting back to the Don't Burn Your Bridges, there mm. was this funny. Um, in my internship, I did anesthetics and orthopedics directly after one another. Okay. And there's always a bit of a, a, a tension between anesthetics and orthopedics because orthopedics is surgical, very system focused, you know, and and lots of emergencies. And then the anesthetist is left, you know, sorting out all the other, uh, you know, the comorbidities. Yeah, other and, considerations and, and, before and that patient can even go to the Exactly, and it's surgery with blood loss and all of that. So, you know, and I was in the one speciality where you were like constantly fighting with the anesthetist to just get your case on the table and then immediately went over to the other one and working with the very people that I was fighting with <laughs> to tell these other parts like, no, the patient's not ready for that. It was so funny, that immediate uh, tension yes. between the two. And, you know, I could have definitely managed both residencies better. And then in, in terms of the knowledge gap, my 
our head of department in my final year, I said, Prof, like the, the more I study, the more I realize I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know and this is in my final year before exam. And he said, he said with this big smile on his face, he says, yes. And on the day of the exam, you realize you know nothing at all. <laughs> and I was like, thanks for the reassurance. Gee, that's encouraging. <laughs> but it was encouraging because we feel like that. Yes. You actually, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And you have to just handle that tension, but it's actually a good place to be. Yeah. The more you realize you don't know everything, the more open you are to learning. And and there's absolutely no shame in, in asking the dumb question because mm. someone else, including me, also wanted to ask it and, and felt too blind doing so. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of those the, two. One of the best parts of being an intern, I think, is uh, reading for enjoyment, not to pass an exam. <laughs> like, I've actually really enjoyed reading some notes and, and, and <laughs> absorbing stuff in my own time. Not Only because I have <laughs> a couple of weeks to, to cram for an exam. Um, how do you go about with your continuing education as an ophthalmologist? What are you reading to stay up to date? How are you continuing to grow now that you've qualified and got your own private practice? What fuels you um, to keep on reading and learning and growing? So th- I think the answer is seasonal because like right now I have a toddler at home and my wife is extremely busy. So we have to find that balance and I just do not have the luxury of reading anything for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not even the back of the newspaper. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> even prioritizing your WhatsApp. Do I need to read this right now? Exactly, yeah. you know, like... Uh, <laughs> uh, it's... Uh, I just don't have that time. Yeah. But yeah. You, can't, you, you can't fall behind, especially in a technology-driven field like ophthalmology. You, like, things are just changing so quickly. Mm. Um, are there any resources you can recommend or suggest that if you had the time so you would tap into two things that you know I always have long answers for short questions but two things the one is is your conferences I was not good enough at making time for conferences as a junior doctor and I'm now um, and it's hard because you're always on call you always have to cover and the senior sure. guys go you know but but when you do get a gap those conferences are great because like you heard it also opened up a connection for me to start practice and you just get to see your colleagues in a little bit different environment you know you're not constantly one being asked questions you can sit back and there's a speaker and you hear them present and you sometimes see their complications and mm. everyone's asking them the hard questions mm. and you get to see other people's mistakes and you go oh my word i thought i'm the only one that did that and and it's a different environment to learn plus then in the evenings you have the welcoming event and you've got the, the yeah, but social Saturday vibes. night dinner yeah. and you just get to hang out and talk to people and meet people and and that's really a different style of learning and then um, the other thing is is presentations mm-hmm. there um, there are various platforms that that allow for you to actually give talks mm-hmm. to junior doctors to um, you know other like associate like for us we have uh, optometry for instance um, doing lectures because everyone needs CPD points yes. you know so you it, it's quite intimidating to to talk to other ophthalmologists you know but presenting at a conference and doing that even if it's just like a well read up case report you learn so much by doing that mm-hmm. I always learn so much when I'm preparing a talk to give to someone else. Yes. I'm the primary beneficiary of, of that presentation. So those are two ways that are a little bit different than just like sitting and reading or, or going through the usual training program um, is, is these 
slightly more social events and, and then also where you then start giving back and you teach. Mm. Like I said, I miss the teaching, so that's probably why it's, mm. it's one of the primary ways for me. But it really, again, you know, you, you get to present on cases that you enjoyed or that were particularly challenging, and then your colleagues go, oh, wow, yeah, I had a case like that. What did you do? Or, you know, the optometrist might see, oh, well, this is your scope of practicing your interest, and then a patient walks into an optometry practice, and they know this, this guy likes treating this condition or he's dealt with difficult cases in this field. And that's how the whole, you know, social system fits together and we you know we stay connected and yes. help each other yes so if you were to uh, look into your crystal ball of ophthalmology now and cast your vision to the next 10 maybe even 20 years into the future what do you see um, in the field of ophthalmology uh, what are the new developments what's the latest cutting edge and where's the subdiscipline or the subspec going well which which one of those questions? <laughs> no, so I I um, being in private practice, there is an awareness in the future of things, of the the rest of the environment, mm -hmm. political environment, the financial environment, um, and you know ophthalmology is is marching forward with just incredible utilization of technology and augmented reality is just going to play a bigger and bigger and bigger role. In, in everything from mm. from real life um, you know superimposition of specific like incisional angles and positioning of lenses and and refraction um, used real-time in surgery uh, you know we already have that it's just not that widely available where <laughs> you're putting in a lens and the, the microscope in real time refracts the patient tells you whether your, your your astigmatism axis is aligned and is your lens the correct strength and um, you know, those things are, are in use and it's, it's available. Is there an increasing reliance on computers and digital technologies and AI and things <coughs> like that? So reliance and usage, you know, you always get the guys at the front of the curve that really push the envelope of what a specific technology can do. And then the guys that, that are behind and are not using things everyone's using. And then there's that, that middle of the bell curve and, mm -hmm. and technology you know, especially I think in ophthalmology, but I guess everywhere, you know, it's it's not just a gimmick. The information we get is incredible and mm. constantly the subspeciality uh, communities are having to update protocols and classifications and you bring into that the, the genotype of the whole thing and you've got things with a similar phenotype but a completely different genotype or different phenotypes but it's actually the same disease genetically, you know, and and the technology allows us to just refine this. And unfortunately, we don't always have better treatments, but even there, in the molecules that we can design um, and, and in specific like receptor-specific uh, molecules, uh, specifically your biologics and so forth, sure. the technology, it, it's only gonna be pushed in that direction. And I guess you, you look at the R&D costs and you know there's also a need for companies to, to get back some of that, that expenditure on R&D so is the latest newest thing always the best thing or is it just being marketed there's that balance and we need to you know patients often come in here and they're like oh wow the technology is amazing and then I just hold in front of them like a little 78 diopter lens which is exactly the same as the one they used a hundred years ago you know this sure. the newest latest thing is not always the best but it forms an integral part of what we do yeah. and and patients are also engaging with 
technology more. So I mentioned augmented reality. There are spectacle stores where that no longer have to keep stock of frames. You walk into an, an, an AR room where you can fit all the different frames and then once you're happy with the one that you like, then you order your frame. It was all augmented reality. Um, mm. So the utilization and integration of technology in the everyday things that we do is, is a huge part of ophthalmology as well and that's only going to become more and more uh, common. And, you know, like I said, there's been the, well, how do you make it financially uh, feasible and accessible and so forth? And, you know, this is where disruptive uh, technologies come in and seeing how do you make it cheaper mm. and, and more available and so forth. But what, what I heard you say is that this is a field that's growing. Mm -hmm. This is a field that is very open to technology and is definitely has a place for these new technologies and Absolutely. new devices and stuff, even though it's grounded in things from 100 years ago exactly. or, or even further. Um, it is also, as you said earlier, it's a field full of microsurgery, mm -hmm. really, really intricate details. I mean, I've seen you work on the anterior segment and it's, you've, you know, your, your depth of, of mm -hmm your entire surgical field is less than one centimeter that you're working in. You know, it's quite amazing. Um, so thank you so much for giving us some insight into ophthalmology. Um, I think the junior doctors and medical students and even the consultants from other disciplines who tune into this podcast have, have learned quite a lot about what our ophthalmology colleagues um, are studying, what they, they're doing. Uh, one final thought, if I could push you for just a closing message or closing thoughts to anyone listening to this podcast if you want to leave an impression on them about ophthalmology, uh, just in general, as a speciality, what would you have to say? An impression about ophthalmology, well, it's, it's like any speciality, it's a, it's a field that requires both the passion, the drive, you, saw, you know, sort of the feel of it, as well as just the grafting, the day in, the day out, the doing the stuff that you don't, and that's not specific to ophthalmology, but I do sometimes think there's this impression out there that ophthalmology is the easy life. Um, if you're going to be really good at what you do, and your patients deserve you to be mm -hmm. the best that you can be, if you have specific opportunities in life that allowed you to get to med, med school and to specialize and, you know, you know so many things have to fall in place for that, and a lot of it is also your hard work. So like just make the most of it make the most of it don't forget to have fun and, and, and enjoy it and don't take yourself too seriously but make the most of it because the better i get at stuff the more i enjoy it mm -hmm. and the more the more i enjoy my time with my patients and my patients their time with me you know the more freely you can discuss things the more honest you can be about about the difficulties of of complex cases and so forth so you know, it's a little bit cliche, be the best that you can be, but you know, it takes, it takes a lot day in and day out to be the best that you can be. And then on the flip side is, is the issue of burnout. Burnout is very real anxiety among doctors, depression, substance abuse, etc. You need to know how to rest. And um, if you're not going to rest well, mm. you're going to sort of rest every day and just be sluggish and not be the best that you can be. So there's the time to, to work hard and really graft and pull your weight. And then there are times to wind down and relax, uh, maintain your friendships, work hard on your relationships, um, you know, and, and not neglect those things because it's also required in order for you to then go back 
and be the best that you can be. We've almost prompted a whole new podcast episode now. We're thinking intentionally about rest rather than just saying, oh, okay, it's a free time. I can just sit down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we'll end there for now. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Joe. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for sacrificing. And if I said time. anything really silly, please forgive me out there, people, <laughs> universe. <laughs> it was all great. It was all gold. Thank you so much. Cool. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you know of a specialist consultant or a senior registrar that you would like to be featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. If you've got anything else in your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show, or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. The Dr. Coffee podcast is brand new and brewed each week with you in mind. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a medical student or junior doctor in your world who you think would benefit and enjoy the content. Bye for now.